This is Books, Beats, and Beyond, where we will bring you provocative music and engaging interviews from music artists, authors, and others with topics that will pique your curiosity. I'll be your host, Taj. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Judith Weisenfeld about her highly informative book called New World A-Coming, Black Religion and Racial Identity During the Great Migration. When Joseph Nathaniel Beckles registered for the draft in 1942, he rejected the racial categories presented to him and persuaded the register to cross out the check mark she had placed next to Negro and substitute Ethiopian Hebrew. God didn't make us Negroes, declared religious leaders in black communities during the early 20th century urban north. They insisted that so-called Negroes are, in reality, Ethiopian Hebrews, Asiatic Muslims, or raceless children of God. Rejecting conventional American racial classification, many black Southern migrants and immigrants from the Caribbean embraced these alternative visions of black history, racial identity, and collective future thereby reshaping the black religious and racial landscape. New World of Coming focuses on a few of the prominent movements of the time period, which were the Moorish Science Temple, the Nation of Islam, and Father Divine's Peace Mission Movement, and a number of congregations of Ethiopian Hebrews. Judith Weisenfeld is Agate Brown and George L. Collard Professor in the Department of Religion at Princeton University. Judith Weisenfeld, Welcome to Books, Beats, and Beyond. Thanks very much. Thank you. Um, this book is so fascinating. I'm so glad that you wrote this book. And, and one reason I say that because over here at Books, Beats, and Beyond, as the title says, we focus on music and we focus on historians and, and other stuff just to open people's mind. And a lot of hip hop focuses on these kind of uh, uh, movements, these deal, these theological movements that you kind of express in this book. So it's fascinating to get a more deep insight into um, the, these um, different theological movements. So I just want to understand what kind of motivated you to write this book? Well, I had long been interested in these religious movements, in part because a lot of my early uh, work in African-American religious history is focused on the urban north, thinking about what kinds of um, religious transformations the Great Migration put in motion. And um, earlier work, I looked at uh, black women's religious organizing in New York and um, uh, did a book about African-American religion in American films, in Hollywood films and race movies. And a lot of the narratives in those films were kind of thinking about urban versus rural questions in the early 20th century. So just the, the issues about what happens when people migrate from the rural South to the urban North, what happens religiously, and also in the case of this book, what happens when those people meet immigrants from the Caribbean, what kind of how does the city become an engine of religious creativity and transformation? So that's the kind of broad scope um, of a lot of my interests. 
And um, going back to my undergraduate days, though, I was just really taken with with Father Divine, mm-hmm. um, having read uh, the 1944 uh, anthropological text by the black anthropologist Arthur Huff Fawcett, where he profiled a lot of movements similar to these, some of the same ones, but um, uh, not all the same. And he uh, looked at some other movements in Philadelphia, mostly. And Father Divine's group was one of them. And I just, I don't know, there was something about um, the audacity of that guy. <laughs> and, right. um, and, and the, again, just the kind of the creativity, the theological imagination, the social transformations, all those kinds of things. So he, I always just found Father Divine fascinating. And when I came back around to this work, wanted to think through what was going on in terms of religious creativity, through a different lens than I had initially um, been drawn to, and that, in this case, was to think about how they were talking about race. Mm-hmm. Now, your background, does your background have anything to do with these kind of theologies, or was it, as most African Americans are, more? is it more more of a Christian background? Like, what really brought, drew you in? Um, I don't study religion because, from a religious perspective. The academic mm-hmm. study of religion is, you know, I approach it as a historian. The academic study of religion is not about promoting certain kinds of um, religious perspectives. Um, but I, and I didn't come to this project out of reasons having to do with my particular background, but um, I, my mother is an immigrant from the Caribbean, from Trinidad and Tobago. And that helped me or motivated me in this book to think a little bit more carefully about the distinctiveness of Caribbean immigrants in the urban north in the early 20th century than I had in in earlier work. Mm. So I was, so one part of that was just thinking about how trying to avoid the very quick turn with someone like Marcus Garvey, who's whose um, political program is a kind of engine for a lot of this stuff, right. avoid that quick turn from talking about him as Jamaican to talking about him as African-American, right? So what did it mean in a very particular way for him to, and lots of these other figures to have come from the Car- British Caribbean, British West Indies, and brought mostly um, uh, Roman Catholic and high church Protestant theologies with them uh, as the kind of ground before they make these transformations. And so, you know, my mother's family is Catholic. And so that was um, another thing I wanted to, at least in the background of this work, to take seriously, to not just, again, fold them into um, what was more common in the African-American context, which had been like, you know, Baptist and Methodist and Pentecostal and holiness. That's all there too. But so that's one part of it. Um, And then the other uh, part of it actually is um, as I started researching this project, uh, my, so I grew up in a neighborhood in Queens that was um, that in which there were a number of prominent um, black Jewish families. Queens, New York. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so what what I use call the you know I use an umbrella term of Ethiopian Hebrew in mm-hmm. this book, 
Um, but I went to high school with someone who's actually, uh, who was a rabbi in one of these groups and mm. congregations that descends from one of the, the ones I profile here. And he's also a historian of this, these movements. And, and my brother, one of my brothers had, um, told me, you know, he'd mentioned someone he went to elementary school with, and it turned out that she's the granddaughter of one of these rabbis. So oh, wow. there was a sense in which it was, I, it was kind of around me when I was growing up, but it wasn't very prominent. Right. And I didn't have the tools to really make, I didn't have this context for it at the time. But, right. um, but I will say just the, as kind of having, in some ways, growing up as an outsider to the mainstream of African-American religious life uh that's always made me interested in things that are that are on you know on the margins theologically or in the minority theologically or cutting against the grain and so really almost none of my work or very little of it has i should say but very little of it has to do with churches and denominations Mm -hmm. and i just am really drawn to um you know the kind of the non-normative to see what kinds of things they're trying to do. Right. So, so you, you coined, I think you coined a term in this book called religio racial identity. Can you elaborate on what this term means? Cause I think it's very important that people understand. Well, when I came back to thinking about these groups and questions of religious creativity, I, um, so I, and I thought about these as an undergraduate and early in my graduate career. Now, many years later, I returned to it still interested, and there's been a lot of really good work since then um, looking at the history of the Nation of Islam and um, on Black Jewish groups and the history of um, Black Israelites or Ethiopian Hebrews, a wonderful um, biography of Father Divine by Jill Watts. And so there's there's lots of, of work done, but the question that and thinking about their religious orientations and trying to fit them in some ways or understand them within the orbit of um, Islam, for example, or how do we think about some of these congregations of of Ethiopian Hebrews or black Israelites as Jewish, and what are their claims there? What are their practices like? And certainly a lot of work on Father Divine to move away from thinking about him as, and i come back to the term, a kind of cult leader, but to understand the ways in which he situated himself in, in Christian tradition. Mm. So that kind of work was there, but I was really still um, interested in figuring out what the racial component of their uh, identity claims were. So it was never just the case. It was never the case that um, people in in the Nation of Islam just said we're Muslim. It was important for them to say, also we're they use different kinds of terms, but Asiatic Muslim, mm-hmm. or the Moorish Science Temple. They talked about themselves as Moorish Americans, or also Asiatic Muslims and, and Hebrew Ethiopian Hebrews. So what what work was that first part of it doing and why was it always there was one of the questions. And why is it, why are they all doing a similar kind of move of bringing race and religion together in this period? So that's what uh, led me to think about a new, um, to think about these together. And a lot of my work and my teaching 
is focused on ways in which religion and race interact or intertwined um, are to, in American history to such a degree that they produce one another. And um, so this was another arena in which I was going to explore this, these questions of religion and race together. And I ended up talking about them, talking about religio-racial identity as what they were promoting and the movements as these groups, as religio-racial movements for that reason, because I wanted to argue that what I see in them is that they understand race and religion to be connected and inseparable. And that once you know what God really wants you to be or who you really are by divine constitution, racially, you know what religion you are and that these things come together. And I also wanted to get away from the language of, of cult and sect, which is what um, Arthur Huff Fawcett used in his 1944 ethnographic study. It was common language. It is still common language, unfortunately. Um, but he talked about uh, Negro religious cults and sects in the urban North. Why, did, why do you think I, they called it cults? I mean, was that more of a, just a downplay on, on the importance of, of these uh, religions? What, what, what was the distinction that made them say cult instead of religion? Partly, uh, it's partly pejorative. Yeah. That is to say that it's not, it, it, it does express a view that it's not real religion, that it's something invented. And I think, um, so there's one way to use th these terms, cult sect, that that's not pejorative. That is to say, you know, in religious studies, an older older ways of talking or talk about ancient um, occult in the ancient world. It just refers to uh, a kind of organized uh, devotion to a particular thing, mm -hmm. God, whatever. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a demeaning term, but as it picks up in the United States, certainly oh, yeah. in scholarship from the early 20th century on in particular, it gets applied in ways that are often racialized. So it's about demonizing religious practices and groups of people of color. Mm -hmm. And it is absolutely, I think in common parlance now, embedded in a hierarchy. Religions are real, true, hmm. um, authorized, and cults are false and dangerous. And sects are somewhere in between. They're sort of um, often, right, they're, they're understood to be, to have a relationship to religion. They're a kind of break-off group. But they're also kind of compromised in some way, in, by the, just in, in terms of how we use those terms. Yeah. So in order to, um, right, and we imagine all sorts of things, and, and I teach about this, I talk with my students about what we imagine cults are. They're driven by, by manipulative, charismatic, false leaders. They have um, illegitimate social organizations that involve coercion, and, um, and there's often other kinds of dangerous things going on. And people talked about these groups in just those ways in the 1930s, 20s, 30s, and 40s, 30s and 40s especially. 
And I just didn't want to have anything to do with the associations that come with those terms. Right. And the last thing I'll say about that is that um, because we think that there are inherent characteristics to something that is a cult. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to turn instead to think about what the people in the groups thought they were doing. Um, there's a line in, in a documentary I teach about uh, Jim Jones and Jonestown. And one of the scholars who's also a relative of one of the people who died in Jonestown um, she says, nobody joins a cult. You join a religious movement, you join uh, a, what you think is a family or social right. group. And so cult is an outsider word. Right. To get away from that, I wanted to, to find a term that characterized what I think these members uh, and leaders thought they were doing. Right. I think what's interesting is why why do you think with these new religions, with these new, with these uh, uh, religious racial movements, they found it necessary to change their their racial identity? Why why wasn't it enough to be considered, you know, of African descent? It seemed like it went further than that. Why? We're gonna stop right here and take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Hit it. I think what's interesting is why why do you think with these new religions with these new with these uh, uh religious racial movements they found it necessary 
to change their their racial identity? Why why wasn't it enough to be considered, you know, of African descent? It seemed like it went further than that. Why? Yeah. Well, they're doing this in a moment in which um, the kind of prevailing racial label is Negro. And it's something that uh, that's it, being discussed and debated in black public culture in this period. And one of the my goals for this book as well was to show the ways in which these groups are actually members of these groups and the leaders are engaging in a common, broad social discussion in black public culture about black history, identity, religion, who are we? What should we call ourselves? These are things that people are talking about. And so their contribution to the discussion is um, doesn't become the dominant one, but it's part of a broader discussion and they, they're weighing in. So I, I write in the book about this, um, uh, it's a, like um, a, a contest in the uh, Baltimore Afro-American Oh, wait, I can't remember if it's the Pittsburgh Courier or the Afro-Americans in the black press. And um, and they say, like, let's uh, let's solve this question once and for all. Like, what should we call ourselves? And people write in. It's actually really fascinating. People write in about why um, they like the term Negro, why they object to the term Negro, why Afro-American. And there are all sorts of terms come up and colored. And... Some people from the Moore Science Temple write in and say we're we're actually Moors, mm-hmm. and so it's a it's a common discussion. Although Negro is really the the um, dominant category, and they're rejecting that because um, they see it as as an ascribed label. So it's been put on them, forced on them. That it is that the Negro doesn't exist as a being, as a, as a collective group and that it's, and that accepting that label means accepting the notion that black history began with slavery. Mm -hmm. The Negro is the product only of slavery in the Americas. And they're saying we have history and, you know, one can um, excavate the kind of, uh, the relationship of of historical fact to imaginative construction and the yeah. histories they they give us, but but the impulse there is to say we did not come into being with slavery. God made us. God made us um, as you know in Morocco, which is the claim of of the more side sample, or we we are the biblical um, Hebrews and our roots are in Ethiopia, these kinds of, of moves are to shed that idea that mm-hmm. there is no us before slavery. And and I think they're they're also rejecting the ways in which the history of black Christianity is tied up with that. Mm-hmm. So for them in some ways Negro and Christian went together and to to reject one was to reject the other in its in that form of Negro Christian and um, to think about 
you know, we must have some other religion that's really ours before that. So they're not, and they're not rejecting African descent. They are re-signifying it or re-signifying blackness. It's not that they don't want to be black, which is one thing people often say, ask me about this. They're just trying, you know, to get away from being black. It's not that. It's that they want blackness to mean something else. I see. Yeah, yeah. And I found that interesting because some people might think it's comical that they wanted to change and be yeah. Ethiopian Hebrews, Ajax Muslims, all these different terms, but they don't think about how just today we're considered black and white. Or when you think about Christianity, everybody might, a lot of people think Jesus is white, Moses is white. You know, you think about Judaism, no, no, no one, most people in their brain, they don't see a black, they don't see someone of African right. descent. They see right. someone that's white. So, mm-hmm. I just want people to step back and just think about that. When you think about those, those, those figures I talked about and think about these religions, how often does a person of African descent pop in your mind? Right. And so it, it's, it's kind of on the same playing field. That's what I started to feel when I was reading this book. And I like how you just brought up about Christianity. And so how did, how did black Christian organizations, you know, react to these uh, racial, re, uh, religious racial movements, you know, and and how did how did these uh, new religions counter the reaction the Christian reactions? So obviously, in um, in the context of cities of the north, as these groups gain members, um, they the mainstream black Christian leaders and institutions see them as as something of a threat in terms of, of, uh, taking members and also as a, as a problematic challenge to the political, economic, social, and religious dominance of black Protestant mm. churches. And one of the things, so, you know, in a small context, you know, of say, um, uh, Harlem, Right. These these what Roy Otley, uh, whose book um, New World of Coming, uh, the title of this book comes from. He was a um, journalist of um, Afro-Caribbean descent in in Harlem. And um, he talked about these as the blacks and Arthur Huff Fawcett as well. Black cities within cities in these small neighborhoods when you've got like Adam Clayton Powell and um ministers of uh, the major black churches like St. Mark's Methodist Episcopal Church. And um, and then you've got Father Divine. And this, in that small context, that's a lot of um, contest and contestation going on. Mm-hmm. Or in the, the Mill Hill District in Pittsburgh, where the Morse Science Temple was a really strong presence. Or in Detroit, where the Nation of Islam was. Or Harlem again also has the um, the um, uh, Ethiopian Hebrew congregation. So it's even though the numbers of these groups remained small in total, in these smaller worlds of of black communities, there was a lot of of pressure and debate. And so I was interested in thinking about the impact of these groups in that way. So in what ways did black Christian ministers challenge them and respond to them or have to adjust their own sense of what they were trying to do. So 
Uh, needless to say, for the most part, um, for the most part, black Protestant religious leaders disliked these groups. Yeah, and um, you, you kind of talked about not only did they dislike them because it was uh, uh, um, could pull some of their their congregation away, but the, it, they didn't like them because of how it projected, you know, people of African descent in front of the white dominant culture, right? Right. Lots of um, concern for uh, two things. One, certainly respectability politics. How are we going to look? And uh, if we've got people wearing, you know, one of the things I focus on in the book is how average members live their lives in these, in these groups. And so we've got people, and, and that involved all sorts of changes of um, name and dress and diet and yeah. family structure and living contexts. And if you've got people wearing fezes and harem pants and changing their names and parading in the streets and things like this, that that, that makes us as a people look bad was, was the argument. And, the other is uh, a related argument was really about uh, kind of the community connection and um, power and numbers. And there was a lot of concern, not just about these groups, but about the, um, the increasing prominence of holiness and Pentecostal churches and independent not new denominations. So what, what mm. did it mean to see a kind of proliferation of religions and a fracturing, uh, if from one perspective, that, that a lot of the more conventional religious leaders in Baptist and Methodist churches, for example, thought was just going to dilute the political and social power mm. and obviously undercut their own leadership. So these new movements are sitting alongside some of these other ones. And some of the fiercest critics I found were leaders of holiness and Pentecostal churches who are trying to take their place in black public culture. Mm. So in, in one way to do that is to differentiate themselves from, right? So a figure like, uh, uh, elder Michaud, um, for example, or, um, so he, as a, as a holiness leader to differentiate himself from, uh, father divine, so he's on this horror, you know, really vociferous campaign against Father Divine. So there's a lot of infighting as people are jockeying for um, prominence. Right. I, 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 what was interesting, I, what was it about the migration to the north that made people more susceptible to these new religions? Um, and why not the south? Why wasn't it kind of bubbling up in the south? What was it about the north? We'll be right back. color blue the shade of the color of night is my hue i am the axis that all man thought he knew my magnetism binds like a glue boom i am not a spook when the smoke disappears show me a tree without a root these girls 
just like Frankenstein They got fake hair, fake nails, and monster behinds I was in the cave with Jabril and the spider You was in the cave on all fours looking for fire That's right Fight cavemen, cause I'm the original seed of Abram React now. I got a two-piece like Pacquiao in the dead of winter. My two steps like Mayweather. My forearms just like four men. Swinging at your grill with the weight of four men. If you're enjoying Book Speeds and Beyond, do us a favor. Go into the show notes of any episode, click on the iTunes logo to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. What was it about the migration to the north that made people more susceptible to these new religions. Um, and why not the south? Why wasn't it kind of bubbling up in the south? What was it about the north that did it? That's a really um, that's a good question. That's a hard question. I don't know if I've ever been satisfied with my the conclusions I've come to about that. Mm-hmm. There's certainly um, there's certainly religious creativity in the South. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of it is in the realm of these, you know, holiness Pentecostal movements as they emerge in the late 19th and early 20th century. So creativity in terms of, of novelty and, uh, some also precursor or some versions of, um, I don't know how to say this, So some movements that are making uh, different kinds of biblical claims, kind of Judaizing Mm -hmm. Christianity, you could call it, or messianic sorts of things are also happening in the South. So there are different kinds of movements, prophetic movements. But these these groups I profile, the Nation of Islam, the Moore Science Temple, Father Divide, and the Ethiopian Hebrews, really are uniquely the product of of the urban North in this period. I think it's partly, I think we can think about it alongside other kinds of movements away from or outside of or in contrast to mainstream black Protestantism in these cities. So people people migrate, you come from away from a smaller context, you're in a more anonymous urban environment mm-hmm. and... There's less, uh, less of social life is focused in a small community church, for example. Mm-hmm. And so people, you know, I think people were freer to have a social life in other contexts, secular contexts, right. to pursue political goals through secular means. So we see the rise of uh, black socialists and communist movements in Harlem, for example, in this period and uh, the cultural development. So there are lots of other arenas for that don't require the church. I see. Right. Yeah. Economic pursuit, so on. So that's one thing. I think, so it's geography, the difference between urban and rural. Um, but obviously there's, ur- there's urbanizing in the South going on at this time as well that doesn't necessarily generate this these kinds of, doesn't generate these kinds of movements, but when the more science temple goes south uh, to cities in the south, there are they do find members. Father Divine has a little bit of southern mm-hmm. um, contingent. The other thing is is just time period. I think they come up 
in a period after the end of Reconstruction, the rise of Jim Crow. Jim Crow is firmly situated and I think people are thinking about just raising questions about what, you know, shorthand sort of what has Christianity done for us Mm -hmm. if things are just not materially better. And somebody like Elijah Muhammad is a great case of that and the Mm -hmm. way he talked about what, what made him hunger for something and then become convinced that what W.D. Farad was teaching about uh, Asiatic Muslim identity was right. You know, he was Baptist. He at some point thought about being a minister and, but was so, so marked by the, the racial violence of his life and Mm -hmm. growing up and having seen a lynching as a young man marked then again by, um, just the inability to get to thrive in the in the north when he got to Detroit, and the the question that you that one feels with a lot of these people um, who have left us some sense of what motivated them to join these groups was just like what this cannot I can't continue like this right. this has nothing for me and um, there's this one uh, interview with a guy named uh, Horace X. It's in a sociological study done among members of the Nation of Islam in Chicago in the, in the late 1940s. And, and he says, I, he went through actually a lot of different groups. He tried out political groups and religious groups and was looking, looking, looking for something that could help him make meaning of his life. And he finally heard a preacher, you know, from the Nation of Islam and and he just, he said, I knew that was me. And I just felt completely hmm. different yeah. knowing that I was not the filthy Negro they said I was. Mm-hmm. You know, I am, I'm an Asiatic Muslim. And, and my conclusion too is that not, that it didn't mean that he then, you know, got it, got the job he couldn't get before or it's, you know, the, the material his material circumstances didn't change immediately, mm-hmm. but he just felt different. And I think that kind of hunger um, comes in this period where people are saying uh, after the right Jim Crow and getting away from it in the urban north, like what, what, what will work for us? Cause this isn't right. And that's interesting because their, their social and economic uh, stance didn't really change that much. You know, when they went to the North, they thought it was some promise, but still a lot of them were struggling. But when a lot of them went over to these new religions, they had this sense of pride they never had before, this sense of freedom. And that's what I took away from the book. But their environment was still the same. So uh, that really says a lot to the power of of, um, of these uh, new theologies. Yeah, and that was one of the things I... I did want to get across that it's not a lot of the earlier studies were focused on the charismatic leader that people were just following this person or how could anybody really believe these things? But, but they certainly did. Um, but they also did get new. So pride, absolutely a new theological vision and historical 
sensibility comes out of it. But they also um, they also did get new community. So mm. in in a way, what they get in these smaller, tight knit communities of uh, that require a, a high level of buy-in to the theology, to the name change, to the dress, right, at a, at a cost. Mm. And that was another thing I wanted to show, the ways in which it brought them into conflict with the government and mm. other sorts of things. But they get a, a tight-knit community of support that's not, that could in some ways be like what, right, they left small churches, and for the, not every, right, not everyone was a, migrant or immigrant across the generations, but they left these smaller communities for the larger urban environment and more anonymity and more diffuse uh, social life. And then in joining these groups, they got a small community and support and tight knit, sometimes economic support and yeah. other kinds of structures. Yeah. I will say, you know, just, just to kind of help the listeners, it, we could touch on it just briefly. If you can briefly say what kind of the theology was of 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 some of the the uh the racial religious movements that you touched on so people can just get a a sense of what they thought we're going to stop right here and take a quick break and we'll be right back Just to kind of help the listeners, it, we could touch on it just briefly. If you can briefly say what kind of the theology was of of, of some of the the uh, the racial religious movements that you touched on, so people can just get a, a sense of what they thought. Sure, the groups that I call collectively Ethiopian Hebrew congregations are um, groups that are founded by, and most of the membership, a lot of, majority of the membership are immigrants from the British West Indies, sometimes the French and Danish West Indies also, who come to the East Coast. And uh, many of them are involved with Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association. And they, uh, 
subscribe to the belief that they are that that biblical Israelites are uh, are some of the biblical Israelites are Ethiopians or Africans. There are a variety of ways in which they come to this, but in a way, they see biblical history as as black history and black history as biblical history. So they claim uh, Hebrew identity. They talk about Jews of European descent as Jews to differentiate these different communities. So sometimes they're talking about being among the lost tribes or so different kinds of, of ways of figuring descent. But they claim um, a connection to Ethiopia and to the biblical Hebrews. And so they organize in synagogue congregations and practice forms of, they practice a Judaism that is, um, that they see as, as uh, faithful to the Bible. So the, one of the main congregations is called the Commandment Keepers, mm -hmm. Ethiopian Hebrew congregation. The Moore Science Temple is uh, founded by uh, Noble Drew Ali, who uh, charters this movement in Chicago in 1925. He was a migrant from from the South to through Newark, where he founded an earlier precursor congregation, and they uh, embrace Moorish American identities. So he preached that. Uh, People of African descent are are descendants of Moroccans, although born in America, and rightfully Muslims. And they understood there to be just two large racial groups in in history, so Europeans and Asiatics. And so it, they didn't reject, they didn't see Christianity as an illegitimate religion. They saw it as the religion of Europeans. Mm, and mm -hmm. um, and and Moorish Americans should be Muslim. And they required, he, in joining that group, you took a new name, which he talked about as a true tribal name of the, the, the Moorish tribe. So Bay or Eel, E-L. And the Fez became required, Turban and the Fez, religious garb and and he developed these practices around the holy quran of the morris science temple and the nation of islam has a relationship to the morris science temple but goes off in, in a different direction in asserting that black people are the original people of the earth that allah created only black people and that whites are a devilish creation of a malicious scientist. So whites come along later as a kind of fabricated race. And so the earth belongs to black people who are, um, again, Allah's original creation and Muslim. And so in lots of similar uh, practices or moves to reject the slave name, to reject Christianity and church practices and take on um, the world of, of the the nation of Islam as part of that that group, and finally, Father Divine's peace mission movement is organized around this figure, Father Divine, who was probably born as George Baker in Maryland and migrated north and preached that he was 
the God of the Bible in a body. So he's in a um, Christian tradition in some way. And, but that in this kind of return of God in a body, in the body of a, of a black man, a dark, a dark complected man, the kingdom of God was established on earth. And in contrast to the other groups where they were rejecting Negro and Christian identity in favor of new religio racial identities. That is, we're not Negro. We are Asiatic. Um, we're not Christian. We're Muslim. Father divine preached that people had to reject all racial categories, that race was, was a creation of the devil. Mm. And so he didn't allow the use of racial terminology and so they talked about people when they had to describe them as light or dark complected. And there were white members of, of his group, although the majority was um, people of African descent from the U.S. and the Caribbean. And so they rejected Negro Christian in favor of raceless children of God. Mm. And they lived in celibate, sex-segregated, communal contexts in the peace mission. Yeah. I will say that the interesting thing about all of these new religions was, you know, um, the challenges, you know, uh, of the, of people who converted to these new religions to express it in their daily lives. You could talk a little about that. For me, that was the, the most interesting question. So what does it mean if you, um, you're as you know a resident of let's say Cleveland and you are going to a black church and you so one day come across someone preaching that we're Moorish Americans and Muslims Asiatic Muslims and how do you how do you make that manifest in daily life what does it mean how do you become another religio-racial thing. And the really fascinating thing the, the leaders offered were all of these practices to make that happen. And in the, I was especially interested in the early generations, the people who, who become part of these groups on the ground level. And they're producing that the identity in some ways as much as the leaders are like everyone's figuring it out mm -hmm. what it means to do that and so um they're doing it through through these name changes and they're again really serious about it and i think that was something that just never came across in much of the older scholarship to me because people just thought it was silly in a way but what i found uh, was how how serious people were and the cost of doing so. So um, one of the great examples for me was this woman who, uh, Janetta Bourne, who was an immigrant from Nevis in the British West Indies to, to New York, who joined Father Divine's group in the early... 1930s, and they took spiritual names that were the subject of tremendous amount of ridicule. And she took the name Love Nut. <laughs> and 
she filed paperwork to become a naturalized U.S. citizen. And on that paperwork, that's a, um, a kind of easy legal juncture at which you can change your name. And it says on the form, uh, should I be admitted to citizenship, I would like to be admitted under the name. And there's a blank there, and it's, it's legal. Like, you can change your name when you get married, change your name when you become a citizen. She put love nut, and, and the judge denied her citizenship <laughs> because of her spiritual name. Mm. And I came across newspaper accounts of that, and also they found the paperwork he required that she sign her, her her true her legal name her birth name which she actually did although the newspaper reports didn't indicate that but you know that was a cost she she said in the newspaper's report this is my name this is my the name by which i'm known in heaven mm. and that was more important to her heaven being father divine's kingdom kingdom on earth that was more important to her than than citizenship, although wow. she wanted both. So those kinds of costs, and there are lots of um, other cases of of what it meant in daily life for people too. So you know, and actually, a more science temple member gets drafted into the military. A guy from Trenton in World War II, and he he refuses to shave his beard, which men mm. in the at more science temple were required to wear and take off his fez for a military cap and there were dietary practices. So there was all this conflict and they, you know, he gets put in the guardhouse at the camp at the, at the army base. So there were costs wow. in, of this practice in daily life. Um, when I, when I was thinking about it, I was thinking about if you're part of a family and let's say the wife or the husband wanted to convert to one of these religions, but the other spouse in it, how that must have been a big strain on the families, right? Was that was that common? Lots of family strife over this. Mm. Um, sometimes, I mean, it's kind of interesting to see cases where families all join together mm. and transmit this across generations. But there were lots of cases of, of family fracture um, over it in in groups where. At one point in the Nation of Islam, Elijah Muhammad makes it clear that that married couples need to both be in the in the movement in no. the in the Nation of Islam, and it causes a lot of problems. Um, there are lots of divorce cases in the the records in Michigan, for example, that I found about that, and in the peace mission movement. You actually had to leave your family to become a member. You couldn't, if you were married, you could both join the movement, but you were to consider your your spouse now just your brother or, or sister and your children the same. Wow. And so lots of, lots of cases of, uh, that come before the courts and for adjudication of, of women leaving their children mm. and husbands and joining Father Divines, and some cases of, of husbands leaving their wives and children. And so it becomes a kind of public, um, you know, something of a public crisis in New York at a certain point. The family court judge is, is very, 
he really dislikes Father Divine and yeah. the Peace Mission and seeing all of these cases. And, you know, there was one case I, one woman, and I read about it. Actually, it was an account recorded in an FBI file. She joins the Moore Science Temple and is sent off as a missionary to help um, start a temple in another city. And, and she tells, she t- talks about how her family rejected her and because they didn't believe in this and they didn't want to join. And she says, well, but that's okay. I found a new new family hmm. in this group. Oh, yeah. I found the truth and I found the new family. We'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, this time around, the revolution will not be televised. Woo! As we proceed to give you what you need. Oh, nine, brother. Get live, brother. Ladies and gentlemen of the court. And the hearing against the state of hip-hop versus Jay Trotter. I present Exhibit C. When I was sleeping on the train, sleeping on Mezzarol Lab out in the rain, without even a single slice of pizza to my name, too proud to beg for change, mastering the pain. When New York niggas was calling Southern rappers lame, but then Jack and I slang. I used to get dizzy spells, hear a little ring, the voice of an angel telling me my name, telling me that one day I'ma be a great man, transforming with the Megatron dawn, spitting out flames, eating whack rappers alive, shitting out chains. I ain't believe it then, nigga I was homeless uh-huh. Fighting, shooting dice, smoking weed on the corners Trying to find the meaning of life in the corona Till the five percenters rolled up on the nigga and informed them You either build or destroy, where you come from? The Mac know your projects in the third ward slum, hum It's quite amazing that you rhyme how you do And that you shine like you grew up in a shrine in Peru Question 14, Muslim lesson 2 Dip diver, civilizer 85er I make the devil hit his knees and say to our father Abracadabra, you rocking with the true and living Shout out the lights out, Josephine, Chewy Bivens Shout out the Baltimore, Baton Rouge, my crew in Richmond Why y'all debating who the truth was like Jews and Christians I was on Cecil B, Broad Street, Master, North Philly, South Philly, 23rd, Tasker Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like a commonality between the religious racial movements was, I think almost all of the the leaders, authorities considered themselves prophets, right? It wasn't like they were preaching a message. Well, yeah, they considered themselves as prophets and, and the followers had no problem with that. Why do you think that is? They they didn't even really, they, I don't know how much they considered their secular history uh, of the, of the, Mm. of the, uh, of the leaders and. Yeah. So, how did how did that? Yeah, m- more than more than prophets in the case of Father Divine and W. D. Farad and the Nation of Islam, um, Father Divine was was very clear. He he was God, hmm. and this is the thing that enrages uh, mainstream Christian leaders most of all. And W. D. Farad over time. Uh, at first, he's 
when he is first preaching in Detroit and Elijah Muhammad writes these letters to the Baltimore Afro-American, some of the earliest accounts of published accounts of Nation of Islam theology, he writes, um, come here the prophet. So he talks about him as a prophet. And over time, so Farad is, is, um, leaves Detroit and the movement in, uh, in 1933. And Elijah Muhammad eventually becomes the, the central leader. And Farad assumes the status of, of God incarnate for them and Elijah Muhammad becomes the prophet mm. and Noble Drawley absolutely says he is um, he's the prophet and has a divine message. The Ethiopian Hebrew leaders don't present themselves in quite that way, but they certainly are um, situate themselves as uniquely able to convey the truth, religious and racial truth, and figure like Wentworth Matthew, who's the, the rabbi, the founder and rabbi of the commandment keepers, uh, presents himself and his followers believe he has a certain kind of spiritual power for healing and other kinds of things. And so um, why do they believe it? I... Why not? <laughs> yeah, they, they didn't really challenge their, their secular history because I, I don't know, maybe I just think differently. I would want to know, what, yeah, were, you, what were you doing this before this? From? Where did yeah, you come yeah. from, you know? Yeah, there's some of that. It's funny. Um, so in some cases, uh, they were up front. Well, and actually all of them sort of obscured. Even Wentworth Matthew over time talked about himself as having been born in West Africa. So they're different. They had different accounts of their histories or mm -hmm. they simply obscured them. Um, it's true. I, and in, in some ways one, one can see a doubling down on the part of followers in the face of outsider attempts to uh, debunk them. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of, uh, Newspaper ink spilled on trying to tell the Father Divine's backstory, for example. And so some of it, most of it's not true. So they come up with some woman who says she's his mother, which isn't true, or mm. somebody who's his, you know, one of his wives, these kinds of things. Um, the FBI is truly obsessed with um, trying to figure out who Noble Drew Ali is. And W.D. Farad as well. There was a lot of FBI uh, so, resources devoted to them. So now that you talk about the FBI, how did the government feel about these these uh, new religions? Was it a threat to them, or or what, what was it to the, What was the relationship? In the period I cover, so from these groups' foundings, anywhere from the late twenties. To into the 30s to um, the book covers to about 1950 or so. Um, so I was really interested in the first the first groups of people who joined and maybe transmitting a little bit across generations, but the early period, the founding periods of these. Um, in some cases, the groups just weren't that much on the, mm, the radar yeah. of the federal government, and sometimes they were. Mm -hmm. um, uh, 
overall, I found the groups to be more invested in the United States than I thought they would be. Um, the Nation of Islam, absolutely not, is an outlier in that in this period. And um, I think over time, the more Science Temple um, develops a number of factions after Noble Drawley's death, and some of them are more attached to the United States than others. But so the Ethiopian Hebrew congregations are just not, oh, well, I shouldn't say this. So they, they are patriotic, but they're also allied and interested in with and have an affinity for Ethiopia. Mm, I see. And so Arnold Josiah Ford, who is the founder of Congregation Beth B'nai Abraham, which was the earliest of these um, in, in Harlem, after Haile Selassie is, becomes the emperor, he and a small group go to Ethiopia to kind of prepare the way for a larger exodus from the United States to Ethiopia. And they have a lot of trouble getting, getting things going, getting settled, and Ford gets sick and dies. Mm. And then the community is undercut by uh, the Italian invasion of Ethiopia, so they, they leave. And um, so it never really gets going. A couple of people stay. But um, while they're there, the U.S. State Department is surveilling them and there's a lot of there are a lot of reports about they're just worried about what um, black Americans, as they call them, although they're mostly from the Caribbean before that, um, are doing in Ethiopia. Mm. And so there's suspicion about that. The more sign sample is surveilled by the FBI and it's kind of massive file on them during World War Two. And it's because for two reasons, one, they're they're interested in the claim to Asiatic um, racial identity and the, some conversations um, leaders and members of the group, various of these um, factions of the more science temple are having with Japanese mm. um, or potential people who are presenting themselves as agents of Japanese government. So there's a question of whether these people are going to be disloyal to the United States during the war because of this sense of Asiatic commitment. And they're also looking for um, draft people who are draft dodgers, mm. like failing to register for the draft. And um, so there's surveillance of them. And they find in the end that the actually members of the Morris Science Temple, by and large, are, are registering for the draft and, and are interested in participating and the Nation of Islam, they do not register for the draft. Mm-hmm. Elijah Muhammad is is goes to jail for draft evasion. Mm-hmm. And but but the the Nation of Islam is not on the radar of the federal government for the most part in this period. Okay. Um, it's much more local. And Father Divine is super patriotic. He um, and his followers sell war bonds. Hmm. He sees America as um, as the, they have a political platform that's critical of aspects of the government. In 1936, he has a righteous government convention. They have an anti-lynching platform. Hmm. They want to get rid of weapons, and they, uh, you know, so they have a peace platform. They're, so there's there's a political um, 
sensibility that is sometimes at odds with the U.S. government, but but he sees America as the the best platform for the launching of the kingdom of God mm. throughout the world. So that's interesting. So looking at these these new religions, it was more of a sense of self and what self meant when you join these religions. It wasn't more of um, rejecting uh, America. It's more like if you were, let's say, Italian or, or whatever, and you're in America. You just have that sense of community, but you're still in America. It's not like you don't like America. It's just that you want that sense of belonging. You want that sense of pride that these ring, these these uh, theologies brought about. In, in one sense, it's it's useful to think about some of these groups as promoting uh, an uh, ethnic identity. Uh-huh. Um, historian Sylvester Johnson has written about this about the Moor Science Temple and the Ethiopian Hebrews. So that that uh, Moor Science Temple, that Noble Duali's uh, claim is for Moorish American identity mm-hmm. um, is is a key to that, and I think the the way the Ethiopian Hebrews situated themselves in relation to the United States could be similar as well. Um, the Nation of Islam absolutely rejected the United States as um, that's true <laughs> as illegitimate, yeah. and they were <laughs> a- awaiting the. Um, Allah's divine wrath and destruction of the United States. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and Father Divine, I think, w- wanted to subsume America into the kingdom of Father Divine. So it was a useful platform. <laughs> it was on the right path, but yeah. it had to um, ultimately be uh, subordinated to his kingdom. So, so knowing that many didn't consider themselves in the traditional sense of being black, how, how did these um, racial, religious racial movements feel about all of the activism and organizations uh, involved in um, the civil rights movements or, or movements that focus on, on the betterment of black people? Were they, were any of them involved politically and like, like, you know, you might have some political action committee committees mm-hmm. for other um, religions. Did, did they do this in any sense or was, or was it because of their their sacred kind of time and space they didn't find it necessary well they definitely some of them were um more science temple the ethiopian hebrews were um engaged in broader political um discussions especially around in uh international questions um again ethiopia was a political focus for um the ethiopian hebrews and they would align themselves with political activities in their local or national and transnational contexts, depending on you know what they were. In this is in the period um, the book covers, and Father Divine allied with really unlikely political movements in. Some of this I had to cut out of the book for space, but he was he would work with communists on anti-lynching activism, for example. Uh, you wouldn't, you know, it's a really unlikely partnership. And so they were engaged in um, kind of labor activism. Um, fair pay for workers or to get, can- there were a lot of campaigns in the cities to get um, 
department stores to hire black workers and mm. so you'd see some of them involved in those sorts of things. The Nation of Islam, again, in this period is is more much a little bit more self-contained than mm. than we you know than they become later, right? right. After Not after nice. Elijah Muhammad comes out of out of prison after the war, uh, they became become much more public and they're I think more drawing others to their political mm-hmm. campaigns than engaging in with things that are out there. Yeah. So so I know that the you know the Nation of Islam still is still in existence. Uh, but what about the other movements? How are they doing right now? We'll be right back. So, so I know that the you know the Nation of Islam still is still in existence, uh, but what about the other movements? How are they doing right now? They're all still in existence okay. to some some degree. Um, the Ethiopian Hebrew congregations, the Commandment Keepers, um, continued to exist. Wentworth Matthew ordained other rabbis, and they founded. Um, uh, synagogues in some other cities in the in the Northeast and Midwest as well. And over time, so Matthew died in I can't remember the exact year, nineteen seventy something. And then the other rabbis. Uh, so actually, one of these, one of the rabbis he ordained, 
moved his congregation to the neighborhood I grew up in, in Queens, in Laurelton. So they were kind of spreading out a little bit. But so they they had a chief rabbi after Matthew died. It was harder to to get momentum and organization. But they formed something called the Israelite Board of Rabbis. Hmm. And they didn't have a chief rabbi for a long time, but they uh, named one a couple of years ago. And um, that's uh, Rabbi Capper's Founier from Chicago, who's a cousin to Michelle Obama. Hmm. So that's an older congregation. So they're trying to to organize and build and maybe bring in some congregations that are not part of the historical the older trajectory from the 1920s on, but may have been founded later. So there are a lot of varieties of, of black Israelite theology and organization, but the ones that have their roots in um, the period and these groups that I look at are, are organizing and trying to expand right now. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting to watch. Um, the more science temples still exist in, again, these lots of, um, factions. Mm-hmm. And so if you look online, you'll find the more science temple of, of America, which is the technical name, but, uh, yeah, they claim different, um, trajectories of descent from the next generation of leaders. And the peace mission is, um, diminishing in size. It's as a celibate movement, that's a problem for reproduction. So you have to either right. <laughs> draw draw new members. But they the, they believed as they believed that being a member, being a, a child of Father Divine, meant that they wouldn't get sick or die. Mm. And so, uh, as right early on, it, when it was a thriving large movement with tens of thousands of people worldwide. You could you could attribute illness and death to to failure of the individual to uphold the right standards or theological frame of mind, but over time, you know, people left, people died, and so it's quite small. And Father Divine's um, second wife, Mother Divine, died just a couple of years ago, and he died in 1965. Or mm. in their in their they would say he laid down his body. Hmm. And so it's down to just a um, small set of, of members. There's a, re- a new documentary out called Father's Kingdom. It's showing in documentary film festivals where they the filmmakers spent a lot of time with the current members in outside of Philadelphia and Gladwin. So it's a really amazing portrait. They were there just they were there before Mother Divine died. And they went back just after. So it's a really amazing portrait of of what could possibly be the last generation of the movie. Wow. Mm. Wow. Yeah, because when I was reading about Father Divine, that that was the 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 one I was least aware of was the peace mission. And it was Which so... is probably the largest. Of oh them really? All in wow. The end, yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it was just so it was so fascinating. He's the prophet, he's the god celibacy i'm like how do how do you continue this on <laughs> if you can't do that uh it was it was very interesting reading about that the uh the peace mission <laughs> what, what what was interesting is 
you know, you had to do a lot of research. I mean, you, you were digging into census files and 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 draft documents and you, just to find stuff for this book. It must have been very extensive. Did anything surprise you the most with all that? I think just the way in which these kinds of documents proved useful. I mean, I, I stumbled into, even though I was always interested in this stuff, I stumbled into the project in a way, or it kind of took over my life when I happened upon Wentworth Matthews draft card, draft registration card from 1942 in ancestry.com. And I was teaching a course about these movements. And I just, I wanted to show, I wanted to look up some evidence of, I'd been reading someone else's work on, on this congregation, talking about how he was born in St. Kitts, but at certain points he talked about having been born in Nigeria. And I wanted to see if I could find any reference of that, like in a census or something. And I didn't even know that draft, I didn't know anything about these draft registration cards. And it was on there and, um, you know, and I since kind of called for these from the actual archive itself for publication. And on it, it said, I could see that Hebrew was written in Hmm. in the box where it said pre-printed Negro. And I just, it had never occurred to me that these transactions with the government of the census of um, draft registration of, you know, what it says on people's death certificates and stuff, that this would be where members of the movements would stake their claim to mm-hmm. identity. Right. And so it, just reading the census, looking through all of these vital records and, and public records became a way to find average members of the groups. I think that's the thing I hoped for most for the book oh, was yeah. to not just focus on what the leader said, mm-hmm. but to try and show like what it meant to people and how they lived it. Yeah. And that just really surprised me that that was where I could find stuff. So you know, like the two short examples, one, I just, you know, if you're in father divine, father divine's group and theology is, um, that you don't get sick and die because the eternal kingdom of God is here now. And if you believe you will be with him forever and then people die, what happens to them? And so there's lots of newspaper accounts of people just abandoning former members in the morgue. But I was kind of interested in burial practices. And so um, Pennsylvania death certificates turned out to be a really rich source for that. Hmm. Or if you're in the nation of Islam and you absolutely reject the um, United States government as illegitimate and you reject Christianity as illegitimate and you are a new group and you don't really have clergy, but you affirm marriage and you have to get married, how do you do that? Mm-hmm. Do you just do it, you know, are you just like married by your word on your own or... What? But I, looking in the Michigan marriage and divorce records, found they went to justice of the peace or to judges, and they got married, and they filed paperwork, and that really surprised me. Yeah, I think that was, I think that was, that's really interesting, because, like, 
with most bo- most books, as, as you say, they focus on the leader. And I like how you were able to pull just the average the average worshiper, uh, the average member, and 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 just show how how did they follow out with with their commitment to these new religions? Because you know it, it actually made me how would I place myself in these and mm. just seeing the difficulties they would have to go through and, and, and the commitments they did were, were just fascinating. Yeah. So, so w- w- lastly, what do, what do you, what do you want the reader, you know, to mainly take away from this book? One thing that I think is um, important to keep in mind is has to do with this question of religious creativity just how um, how complicated the religious world of these members and leaders were, that it wasn't a joke, that they were doing serious theological investigation, engaging history in imaginative and creative ways that that um, to imagine, useful, meaningful pasts for black people and to chart new futures in ways that were it, it were profoundly serious mm-hmm. and at a cost to them. So I, I want people to not think of these groups as cults, as silly, but as people engaged in very similar kinds of questions about black peoplehood that um, at, that political leaders and, and black Christian leaders were engaged in at the same time. And that the questions they raise about racial identity are, um, are really rich and productive ones. So they, they are calling into question um, the, the racial landscape in ways that I think um, leads to all sorts of other questions about how race has worked in America and how religion and race are related. Yeah, I, I definitely took that away from it. I think one thing else I took away from this book was it kind of gave me a lens of what it looks like when a religion is created. You yeah. know, I, I found that fascinating. Like I'm on the ground floor of what it looks like for something to develop into a religion and and just the power of 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 people of African descent to do that it just shows how much creativity and and, and what pressure can can help create in, yeah. in our community I really took that away from it as well yeah absolutely well Dr. Judith Weisenfeld I want to say thank you so much for being on Books Beats and Beyond today truly appreciate it thank you so much thanks for your really careful read of the book thank you well, there you have it. I hope you guys enjoyed the interview with Dr. Judith Weisenfeld about her book, New World of Coming, Black Religion and Racial Identity During the Great Migration. If you want to purchase the book, just go right inside the show notes, click on the link, and it'll take you right to the storefront where you can purchase it. And also, while you're in there, don't forget to click on the iTunes link where you can subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Until next time, let's read listen, explore.